everyone welcome back to the bold beautiful borderline podcast i'm here with the beautiful lori who has short hair ooh, ooh, ooh. she's rocking like do we call this a long bob a lob um i've never heard the word lob but yes let's call it that that's hilarious um yeah it's a long it's the, bob it's like the most annoying length where it just like flips out because it touches your shoulders that's exactly where it's sitting so you see this oh, side, I, okay. I already, well, I, we already, got it cut last week and she already is feeling some feels. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was, this is like when I got my bangs cut. Do you remember? I do. Fucking and that is a fucking disaster. brave, that is a brave thing to do. Disaster. And I immediately was like, and I'm going back to my 2007 queer, granola emo girl vibe with my heavy side part and I'm gonna rock it for the rest of my life because I literally could not I I don't know how anyone styles bangs first of all I can't figure it out second of all like the style is like halfway in your eyeballs and I feel like with glasses it must be even worse but some the people that rock it rock it and I'm always oh like holy shit so good for you cute. I know I posted one photo on Instagram the same day my stylist cut them and I was like whatever but um I'm going to have long hair today cuz I'm putting extensions in um Ooh, sew in or whatever tape in I don't know how this works. Um what you were doing tape in because that is apparently probably like the best way to maintain the extensions long-term with how active I am mm, because okay, yeah, yeah. I can reapply, I can get them reapplied every like six weeks or so. Um, nice. So we're going to try that. And then if it doesn't work, we'll make some other adjustments, but I'm I digress. curious to hear about that because I feel like that is that I feel like that would bug my head really bad. Like I'm the kind, I'm like a very sensory sensitive person. Like I can't yeah. like, sleep with rings on. I can't like wear jewelry. I can't do any of that. can't wear makeup very much. Like, so I would just, I feel like having something in my hair permanently would fuck me up. <laughs> yeah. I will let you know. I wore extensions off and on through my eating disorder because my hair was like, I mean, you've probably seen photos. I was my hair was like falling out in clumps and it looked so bad. And I really was trying to fill in the gaps with extensions, but no go. Turns out fueling your body is just the way. But today on the podcast, this is actually going to be like an interesting episode, I think, for Lori and I, because I hit Lori up a while ago and I was like, yo, I just listened to a podcast and I am not okay. So the armchair expert podcast is like one of my favorite podcasts. There's, you know, I mean, I, I like the discussion. I like the things that I learned from like the experts. I also love a good celebrity interview, whatever. I do think it's important to say like Dak Shepard and Monica Padman hold a profound amount of privilege in the world. Regardless of like, you know, their background and their own like oppressed experiences in their lives, like at this point, they have millions and millions of dollars and a ton of privilege. And like, as related, I don't always agree with like some of their political statements, but 
Wait, wait, sorry. I, can I, I, I've never listened to this up, this podcast other than like this one bit. Um, oh, who's Monica? She's okay. like the co-host. So Dax married Kristen Bell. Yes. Monica Padman was Kristen's assistant turned babysitter, then turned like podcaster with Dax. She was like an aspiring actress. And now they've got the Armchair Expert podcast. And it's like really, um, I think, helped give Monica more followers and things like that. And now she has her own booming career doing all of these other things. But they have a podcast And I think it was like originally supposed to be more like Monica helping Dax with the podcast. But at this point, they're like over 500 episodes in and they're rocking and rolling. And it's very like, you know, it's a Monica and Dax. And then because this is going to come up in my notes that I took on the thing that we're about to talk about. Does Monica also have a history of substance use? Like because Dax, Dax is like very public about challenges with substances, right? Yeah, Monica does not have a history of substance use, although they do kind of like soft reference that maybe she drinks too much wine. Right, but not like him, like where he has talked about being really, really, really in addiction for a long time. Yeah. Okay, cool. No. So I was listening in my kitchen, doing my shit like I normally do, dishes, whatever, to the Lily Reinhardt, I think is how you pronounce her episode, where Dax and Monica were interviewing Lily about like a TV show called Riverside she was on and her experience. R- Riverdale. Talk- Riverdale. Oh, <laughs> Riverdale. <laughs> it's like a huge TV show. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't watch a lot of television, but so she was on Oceanside, Riverdale, whatever. And they were interviewing her. But I guess like part of the interview that was interesting to me was she very publicly talked about how inappropriate the Met Gala, Kim K, weight loss, Marilyn situation was. This was like one of the things that got brought up. Ultimately, it brought up like Lily's own eating disorder history, her mental health, her experience with treatment, whatever. She does not have a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And I haven't listened back through the whole episode. So Lori listened to the part that we're going to talk about this morning, and maybe she can fill us in on how BPD came up. But at some point in the episode, BPD came up. And I just want to say that, like, I love Dax and Monica. I see them as human. All humans have our limitations. But it was very painful for me to be confronted so publicly on a top 20, top 30 podcast that has, I'm sure at this point, like hundreds of millions of downloads. I mean, maybe that's a stretch, but it definitely has millions of downloads. And like they have a huge platform and they, Dax made some, I think, disparaging comments. Well, very stigmatized comments about borderline personality disorder. And Monica really responded in a way that felt like she was trying to explore Dax's intention and saying that he didn't say anything wrong necessarily. I just want to go on the record to say that like, No, the things that were said were highly inappropriate. We will reference the transcript in the 
show notes. I'm actually kind of hoping, I haven't told Lori this, but I'm kind of hoping that we can send this podcast in an email to Dax and Monica. I'm sure it'll go right into their spam, but like, I want (laughs) to have a conversation about the untrue and inappropriate nature of the things that we heard in this podcast. Um, It was only like a five to 10 minute kind of snippet, but Lori, fill us in since you've listened most recently. Interesting that you want to send it to him, which I'm like, obviously fully on board with, but it sounds like. Why is that interesting? Well, because it sounds like he has had a lot of people reach out to him about what he said about BPD already. So. Yes. However, I wonder, has he had people reach out to him in a format that is, we want to educate you about the dangers and the incorrect statements that you made as people living with borderline, as people who have built this like really rad supportive community and as people who are also very educated. That part I think shouldn't matter, but Dax and Monica, I know you don't know this since you don't listen. They are like obsessed with academia. Mm. They like love all the top universities and they think that people with degrees are like fancy or whatever. You and I know that's not true. You and I know we're just like everybody else. You and I know that in fact, the reason that we have our fancy degrees is highly maladaptive because we were trying to create a sense of self-esteem and self-worth. But, and I'm not saying that, you know, the thousands of people that maybe reached out to them aren't also just like us, but I mean, shoot your shot. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, I think that the more people who, reach out the better because it's showing that like, no, actually this isn't like a unique person that's reaching out to you. This is like an entire community of people that you've hurt. Um, so again, I don't know the format of this podcast well. So Sarah sent me the like approximate timestamp, which I really appreciate because I had to listen to it this morning at like 7 a.m. So not having to listen to the whole thing was good. Can we say God bless Vyvanse because I got this to Lori the night before. And I found her the exact timestamp from searching through the whole almost two hour transcript on their page. And I sent a screenshot of it to her and I was like, God damn it. This is what it's like to be properly medicated (laughs) (laughs) and very much appreciated. Cause I was, fuck, I was like, I love podcasts, but, um, I actually have this weird thing where I basically don't listen to mental health podcasts. I don't watch mental health shows. I just, I can't like, I just kind of need to like compartmentalize a little bit. So I was like, I don't really want to listen to like a full episode. That's going to be super triggering anyhow. So I, again, I don't know the format super well, but it sounds like based on what I listened to that potentially Dax and Lily in the past or Dax and Monica or somebody had had a conversation about borderline where they said, essentially don't date people with borderline personality disorder. They will fall in love with you really quickly. And then, and then basically like five minutes later, you're their nemesis kind of thing, which I mean, in some ways, I mean, in some ways like we do fall in love easily and we do sometimes turn on people. However, the thing about saying don't date anyone with borderline personality disorder is where the problem lies for me. Yes. I have an, I have a second problem, Mm -hmm. but I do think it's really important if we want to be heard by Dax and Monica, which I recognize there's a 0.0001% chance, but like, again, shoot your shot. You know, some people get pregnant when they're not supposed to, I don't know. Sometimes things are meant to be, but like, 
side note, I'm starting Accutane and I had to take a pregnancy test and I want to know the results because like that really should not be happening to me. And I'm like waiting and waiting for the results. Haven't heard yet, but um, statistically speaking should not be happening to me, but I think it's important for us to like approach the conversation from like both an honoring our frustration and pain and the way that these systemic and social stigmas have really made it difficult for us to live healthy, fair lives compared to like neurotypical people. And do it in a way that's like as objective as possible. So I love that you had a direct quote. Um, And I'm going to try to pull up the full transcript and see if I can like maybe add in some more quotes. But that was the first thing that they said was like, yeah, people with borderline personality disorder fall in love really easily. And like that you said, that was like what you had a problem with was don't date them. The other difficult thing for me was like, you're demonizing pathology, like splitting behavior, which is like, I love you. Now I hate you. I love you. Now I hate you is a literal symptom Mm -hmm. of the disorder. It's not like a crazy girl thing we do that we enjoy where we're like, no, I want to push you away just to like pull you back in. No, it's literally all of my childhood traumas of being left being told I wasn't lovable, being told I wasn't good enough, and then being told in some ways that, no, we do love you. Like that really confusing um, culture that most of us were raised in has resulted in we want to fall in love with you so that we feel safe. And then immediately we realize we've never felt safe love before. So we have to push you away. I would almost, I, I totally agree with you hundred percent. The other, the only thing that I would kind of like say for me maybe is different is the, like, we want to fall in love with you. That statement that you just said, I don't, I don't know if a lot of the time we like want to fall in love with people. We just do. That's I true. Think, I think it's person to person. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just, I'm speaking for my own, for my own self, like, you know, that is a scary feeling to like fall in love quickly, which we have no real like ability to stop. Like, I mean, you know, I don't want to say that because we can go to treatment we can learn skills. Like the stop skill is really helpful in that kind of situation and like wise mind and blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's not like these are intentional decisions that we're making and totally related to on the end of the day. Yeah. It's not that, like I said, that like crazy girl dynamic where Dax very like off the cuff was like, they're going to loop you in and make you fall so head over heels in love with them. And then they're going to like cut you free and then do it really abusively or whatever, and then bring you back in. Right. Like, no, that, that may be how it is perceived to the public, And language on platforms where you have millions of followers and listeners perpetuating that stigma is quite literally resulting in so many dangerous situations for us. And I don't know, like, you know, I'm sure he doesn't know that people with borderline have a one in 10 chance of dying by suicide. 
So like us responding to this kind of dialogue is not like just for us to be like, hey, you said something mean about me. Like, no, no, this is true harm reduction. Like this is keeping our our people alive by not making these stigmatizing statements. Yeah, that and the fact that like, what is it? 70% of people reach remission even without treatment, like over a period of their life, which is the part that I think he didn't grasp. And he did acknowledge this. He said, I I didn't understand that recovery was possible for people with borderline, which is, I'm glad he acknowledged that. We've all experienced that stigma. We still experience that stigma when we try and access help. But again, this, you know, 10 minute admission at the very end of an episode, you know, an hour and a half in saying, oh, I didn't realize recovery was possible, but apparently it is, isn't enough when what people are going to hear is don't date people with borderline end of story because people hear what they want to hear. And that's right. Which I mean, it's probably what we're doing too. Like, you know, obviously this is, this is an issue for us that is like very personal, but treatment is absolutely possible. Recovery is absolutely possible. He did say, and I really wanted your opinion on this. He said, um, you know, in hindsight, this isn't a direct quote, but essentially in hindsight, if what I meant was people who aren't in recovery with borderline, don't date them. But if they are, then game on. And my question for you is, what the fuck does that look like? Because, well, it's like, you know, Dax, was very open about during the pandemic, he had a um, relapse on opioids. Well, should your wife have left you then? Right. Cause if you're not, if you're not recovered. Yeah. Are you, are you not supposed to be with them? And like, you know, I'm sure knowing that I've listened to like, I'm sure over a hundred of these episodes by this point, what Dax would say, and I have heard him say is, I don't want anyone dating a person who's actively in addiction, right? Because that's so chaotic and, and dangerous to the people around them. But it's demonizing that the person, it, it, I'm sure this isn't his intention, but what I think it says to the community is it demonizes that the person could choose, right? Like, yeah, agreed. But it also, kind of implies that recovery isn't linear or sorry, the recovery is linear, which it's not. Sure. And so to me, like it, again, I don't, I don't have challenges with substance use and I'm incredibly thankful for that. So I'm, I don't, I don't know that experience. I do have issues with binge eating, which is also addiction. So I can kind of speak from that experience. The issue with substance use in comparison, like recovery from substance use in comparison to recovery from a mental health issue is that especially like borderline is that like with substances, it's almost a little bit more black and white, depending on your view of what harm reduction is or what abstinence means to you, blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, you don't use for 10 years and then you use, well, that's kind of what people consider as like, either you had a blip, which is the more appropriate way of um, looking at it, or you're no longer sober. Right. Whereas with mental health issues, it's not as easy to like, quantify right like it's not like well I did this and then I didn't do this 
Um, yeah. And you weren't on this episode that um, I recorded recently with Lucia because I think you were at brunch with someone in your family, but you know, to the outside world, quote unquote, I appear to be pretty well in recovery, right? I was very open in that podcast with Lucia where I said, um, for the last three days, I have been actively engaged in self-harm that I know if I don't stop will result in me being hospitalized. That's in the middle of your girl rocking and rolling and being, you know, generally pretty adaptive and generally pretty effective and seeing 30 therapy clients a week and running however many, you know, miles a week and having two relationships that I've been working at and like having a dog and paying my bills and living independently. Right. So yeah. Do we call that recovery when I spent three days self-harming? Do we call it recovery when I have been open about having a relapse in my eating disorder in the last few months. You're right. It's not linear. It's messy. But I think when you say something like don't date someone with borderline, you're saying essentially like you're, you're kind of taking the autonomy away from the person who wants the, to date them. First of all, right? Like if people want to date us wherever we're at on our recovery journeys, that's 100% up to them. And they should be informed about what it looks like to be recovered or not to be recovered. And they should build their own set of boundaries, but that is on them. It is not our responsibility to teach them or to have a self-care plan we build for them. That is their responsibility. So that's my problem with that at first. And then my second problem is all people, regardless of cognitive ability, mental stability or ability, physical ability, race, gender, like all of the isms are worthy of love just because they are alive. Having anything that makes you othered or different does not change your worthiness for love. At one point, Lily basically says like, I'm not going to date an addict. First of all, I hate the word an addict, but I know that that's what people with substance use often identify with. So I'm using that knowing that I don't identify with it, but other people do. She says, "I, I wouldn't date an addict regardless of whether or not they're in recovery. And... I wonder for you what that sound like, what, how that feels to hear. That does not bother me in the slightest because she is using her personal autonomy, right? Like she gets to choose if she wants to date an addict or not date an addict. Anyone I date (laughs) has to be prepared that if I start drinking, it's going to be great. It's going to be really fun until it's not. Totally. And then we're going to have to navigate what happens when I get sober again, right? Like Lori and I have known each other two years. We're on my third third sobriety stint, y'all. But 60 days. So that's awesome. Yeah, like 66 now. But no, like it's the personal autonomy, right? Because as a person living with really, really, really strong emotions, I don't want to date another person with borderline personality disorder. Right. I don't want to date them because that impacts me. 
right? I also don't want to date someone who's not in therapy. I'm not saying don't date people with borderline. I'm not saying don't date people who aren't in therapy. Y'all do your thing. But when Dax says, and I'll quote him, but when Dax says, don't date people with borderline, that is, I think, where the harm is. And he said, he said that he lumped a borderline personality disorder and narcissism into one category. He said, we still don't have any problems saying that narcissism is to be avoided, which again, very dangerous rhetoric, not helpful for people with narcissistic personality disorder. Um, But then he said, where I aired, as I was saying, is if you're going to date someone with borderline personality disorder, you should know that they're going to fall quickly in love with you or that this is the pattern. They fall quickly in love with you or friendship is quickly enamored with you. And then at some point something flips and they decide you're actually their nemesis trying to destroy them. But prior to that, he had said, don't date people with borderline personality disorder. And then that was his kind of like backtrack. Yeah, totally. And the the other part that I did want to talk about is that narcissism piece, because they're talking about like cluster B personality disorders, which I don't think they have any idea that that's what I was going to say. It's literally so funny because I was like, and again, I love Dax and Monica, but y'all, if you're going to say you have a fact check at the end, so Lori doesn't know this, but each interview is followed by like an hour or so fact check where Monica will pull up facts and they'll discuss whatever, like just discrepancies between the actual interview language and then the facts right well that's cool but like uh, I mean I know that like we are pretty good googlers again I paid $4.99 to like find out Andrew's information before we started (laughs) dating but like it's not hard to do a google search and realize that Within personality disorders, there are three clusters. Within cluster B, there is narcissism, antisocial, borderline, and Uh, histrionic histrionic personality disorder. But in the fact check, they literally like said like three personality disorders, and then they didn't say like one wasn't a personality disorder. Uh, Yeah, and I was like, "What are you doing?" I know. I. Frick, what was it the one that they didn't, that they said was, and it totally wasn't. I was driving at this point and I, so I didn't write it down, but yeah, I was like, um, girl, that's not correct. <laughs> but they also, I mean, you can, first of all, again, I don't listen to the podcast, but like armchair expert is like a cool name for a podcast. Cause it's kind of saying like, I don't know shit about shit, but I'm just going to talk about it, which fair enough. If that's what your podcast is about, all good. Sure. But like, but- <laughs> When you have the platform you have and you don't know shit, why don't we bring in people with lived experience? And that's like what you and I do in this podcast. Yeah. Which we have almost 50,000 downloads. Hey, much smaller scale, but like. By the time this comes out, it'll be way over 50, but yeah. The language about a lived experience has to come from someone with lived experience, which is why like. Dax saying whatever Dax is going to say about addiction and substance use disorders, he is allowed to say. Monica saying the things that she says about like her lived experience being like a young Indian girl, mostly growing up in like a white town in Georgia, hers to say. Mm -hmm. Borderline personality disorder experience, they don't get to talk about because we hold that ticket. And all of our experiences are unique, which is why we have so many guests on this podcast, because 
we, Sarah and I are very different people with the same disorder. There's what, 256 symptom combinations of BPD, plus all of the other factors in people's lives, like comorbid conditions, um, you know, social determinants of health, all of these things. We don't want to be the one voice or two voices of people with BPD. We want to share a platform that's safe for people to come and know that people are getting their own experience shared. And there's things that we don't agree with when we're interviewing people where we're like, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't totally. And Lori and I don't agree all the time. No, we don't agree we, most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Never do we actually agree. <laughs> uh, no, we, we, we agree. We agree. But our, our experiences are totally different with BPD and that's, what's so interesting. And okay. So in that line of thought, I'm so, we really, really, really need to get somebody on here with narcissistic personality disorder. Oh my God. I literally am scheduling it. Are you? And antisocial personality disorder. She has narcissistic personality disorder. And I'm literally, literally sent her a message about like, are you around Saturday at 1 PM? Perfect. Okay. Yeah. And I haven't told you this because I didn't want to get your hopes up, but I got a girl. That's amazing. Cause those are two experiences that we can't speak to. I mean, I'm sure there's people out there who are like, well, can you, but like we, we can't speak to that. And same with histrionic, actually, that would be super interesting. Although I think histrionic has a lot more in kind of line with BPD, but anyhow, the, the, it's easy for people who don't know what they're talking about to say, don't date people with BPD. Just as it's easy for people to say, avoid people with narcissistic personality disorder, avoid people with antisocial personality disorder. And I'm sure that you and I have stigma against those groups too, without necessarily like realizing that you hear antisocial personality disorder and you assume that that person is going to be a bad person. But I'm sure sure that that's not true just because people assume we're bad people. Oh my God. Can I tell you what a bad person I am? That like, I, I said something off the cuff that Talon did a like real quick 180 and looked right at me in the eyes. So I was talking about someone, not a client. I want to be really clear on that. My ethical presentation as a clinician is very different than like the way that I act in my off the cuff life. But I said, I was referring to someone who had been talking about their like depression and their anxiety, right? And I turned, I said like, man, if they only fucking knew that they have the starter pack of mental illnesses, like walk a day in my life, bitch. Like I was like, and Talon fucking turned his, his head around and he was like, did you really just say that? Like, did you really just put down how distressing their depression and anxiety is for them just because your borderline is quantifiably more distressing to you, but they don't know that there is a such thing as more distress. How dare, like he didn't say how dare you, but good for him. Good for him. In his way, in his own way, he basically said like, how dare you imply that depression and anxiety is just the baby mental health thing. Like, and I was like, okay, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. (laughs) Yeah. And it's easy to do because I mean, what's weird is that sometimes people with 
say that BPD is less severe than others because it's like more like prevalent throughout your whole life, but I don't agree yeah, with that. Yeah, absolutely but, not. Take a yeah. walk in my shoes. I know. I don't Which know Which is why. how I ended up at that place. I don't know why people say that, but they say it all the time. Like clinicians will say that. They're like, yeah, well, it's like a little bit like less distressing. And I'm like, uh, absolutely fucking not. But anyways, I mean, also anxiety is incredibly distressing and depression. I haven't, I have been diagnosed with dysthymia. So like lower grade depression, but even that is brutal. I can't imagine like major depressive disorder that's like prevalent all the time, but also like they don't understand BPD. So I I don't know what to tell you. It's like people who are like, oh, you won't know love until you have children. And I'm like, oh, well, you won't know love and hate until you have BPD. I don't know what to tell you. Like, go fuck yourself. Totally. Yeah. I think, um, I think that it's very hard for people to contextualize something that they can't understand. Right. And like, it's also very hard for people to contextualize something that generally speaking, those of us with borderline personality disorder attempt to hide from people. So like, you know, I, this summer was like, it's been a very hard relationship with my parents since I got diagnosed with ADHD. And in the diagnosis process, I really have made a decision that I am no longer willing to hide the reality of my life to protect them from me. And so that has looked like really stepping back a lot, not communicating with them by phone as much, not being with them in person as much so that I can just like honor myself and also be like very objective in the way that I communicate the reality of things to them. But, you know, this summer, my dad was like, you know, because I sent a text to my parents and I had expressed to them that I had had a suicide attempt. And my dad was like, you know, Sarah, it was like painful for me that you said that I didn't know that you've been suicidal because like I knew about your suicide at 18 when you were hospitalized. And I kind of just sat with it and I turned and I said, dad, I have been suicidal every day of my life since I was seven years old. And I have not lived with you since I was 17, but I have been actively suicidal every day since I moved out of your house at 17. And I had a suicide attempt on my 28th birthday. And he just kind of looked at me and his eyes got big. And I think he was saying, I have known as if this experience. So when I was 18, when I was hospitalized was an isolated incident. Yeah, absolutely not. No. Yeah. But, but that's the other thing is people don't understand chronic suicidality either right? They, they understand attempt versus not attempt. It's the black and white of it all. They don't understand all of the things in the middle where you're constantly thinking about death and you're constantly thinking like, this would be better off if I weren't here, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know if actually this is so unrelated, but like, I had a really interesting conversation with my counselor the other day. And I said, I get nervous about having hard conversations with people, like really hard conversations with people because I'm worried they're going to kill themselves. 
Oh. And she was like, yes. She was like, why? And I was like, every day. Yeah. And I was like, I just do like every, every, every time I have to have a really hard conversation, I worry that the person's going to kill themselves. And it's because to me, that is the coping mechanism. And yeah. And for me, that is the coping mechanism. And three members of my immediate family have died by suicide and a couple others have attempted Exactly. And I've had a couple of friends die by suicide. Like I was going to say friends die by suicide. So like we've seen it happen. Exactly. Yeah. So, and then she was like, okay, well, that's not how like most people feel after a hard conversation, like after they've been called out for something. And I was like, yeah, I guess that's true. So now we have to do EMDR about my thought process on how everybody's going to kill themselves. Oh my after. God. I can't wait to record yeah. on this. Yeah. Can I say I'm really proud of you for doing that work? Because one, I know it's really hard to get therapy in Canada. You guys don't have access to as many appointments as like I have therapy every week or every other week. So I want to say I'm like really proud of you for using one of your limited sessions and or private paying for ongoing therapy to address this, but also like being with like you said that to her and she's like, we should probably do EMDR about that. And you're consenting to that is like huge progress in your treatment. We're also doing EMDR about my own internal self-hate and why I don't feel like a valuable person. (laughs) So that's going to be super fun. I have a session on Friday, I think. Can I just tell you a little bit of Talon's perspective of listening to the podcast? Yeah, do it. Okay. And I want this to be said to you in a way that I hope is like validating, but if it's invalidating, we can repair. Um, But he is like, talked about how you and I are so different. Right. And he's also seen like me get dysregulated when I am so afraid of disappointing you and letting you down when I have to do something that is helpful for me. Like he's seen that cycle and he was like, you know, you and Lori are so different. He was like, you, and part of it is like, you you're so anxious and I'm so depressed. Right. And so those interact differently, but he was like, your guys's self-hate shows up so differently. Lori's self-hate, it seems like from what she has said has really been externalized into like anger, right? Like when you were younger and he was like your self-hate and part of why you and Lori like can't probably understand each other at times in your conflict is because your self-hate is so internalized that you guys can't like see each other. Yeah, I can see where he's coming from. I think that I hide my self-hatred internally a lot more than you do. So I think maybe it comes across as more external. Well, I, I think what Talon was saying is like, he was like, I think it comes across as anger. Yeah. Well, it feels, so that's the thing is it feels like anger, but it's, it's a spiral of hatred for myself for being angry. So my counseling actually is last, which is why I can't see it. Right. Because it feels like you're angry. Yeah, exactly. Where it's actually me hating myself. So my, it was really helpful for me, by the way. And like, understanding you a little bit more to have him like bring that. So now I can bring it to you. Yeah. Thanks. No, that's interesting. My, my counseling treat or homework from two sessions ago was to hate as much as I want. 
as long as I'm not hurting other people about it. She's like, because what happens is you have, you're mad at somebody and then you spiral and it turns into your, I'm worthless. I'm a terrible person. How dare you be this angry, blah, 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 blah. And then comes in all the suicidality and all the like, I'm not good enough and blah, 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 blah. And she's like, you're allowed to feel mad at people. That's fine. Um, And uh, yeah, so anyways, that was my homework, but that's going to be part of my EMDR is my own internal self-hatred because there's- I'm so proud of you. Lots of it. Yeah. Yeah. And because like, I do externalize in the sense of like, I talk about my feelings of self-hatred, but like, it doesn't, it doesn't come out loudly as like, like anger never really shows up in my day-to-day life. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it never did when I was like younger, like in terms of like, you know, conflict with like friends or partners and things like that. Like there has been like yelling and stuff and like name calling, but then immediately it's just like turned inward or it's like, that's after like a long, long, long period of it being inward and self-harm and these kinds of things. And like, I can't imagine what it has been like to live with the amount of self-hatred that has also resulted in anger that's like impacted your life Mm -hmm. so significantly, like your relationships, like within family and things like that. So I don't know if that feels validating to you or if I'm not communicating it, because I'm probably not communicating it effectively because it's making me anxious. You're going to be upset with me, but like, it was really helpful for me in contextualizing further, like our dynamic in our relationship. Yeah, no, it's not invalidating by any stretch. I think I, I'm always because I've been so demonized as a bad human my whole life that it hurts sometimes to feel like people are scared of me, if that makes sense, because that's, I was demonized. I was the bad person. I was the black sheep. I was the one who was, you know, going to kill everybody in their sleep, even though I wasn't going to like, you know, um, and so I have a lot of feelings about that, but that's my own shit. And so I don't, I don't disagree that like our self-hatred presents completely differently. That's obvious. Um, But yeah, I just, I'm always like sensitive about people being scared of me because I, I don't want that obviously, but. Oh my God, of course not. Yeah. And I try really hard to not be mean and to not yeah. be angry at other people. I, you know, I, t- I internalize it. Oh and my God. Totally. and this is, this is like DBT was really great for my external anger, but it was not great for my internal anger. Totally. Um, so I think a lot of DBT actually made it more distressing to be me and less distressing to be around me. And this is, I mean, we're talking 10 years ago, right? Like that, like those sure. changes are, those changes are old. Um, well, and I think like, like looping it back into what Dax said and like, here's the deal. Like, I think what you just said is a fucking perfect description of DBT. In fact, I wrote something on my Instagram that I kind of want to reference, but I essentially said, 
the environment around us was never going to change for us. And so we had to learn skills in order to be effective because people said, Lori, you're bad. Sarah, you're too much. So-and-so you're whatever. And they said, in order for us to want to be around you and to essentially love you, that's how we interpreted it, you had to change. Well, DBT does not take away any of the self-hate. It may reduce it sometimes because your behavior is more effective. So then your shitty behavior isn't reinforcing your self-hate. But DBT really just allows us to walk out into the world and like not get arrested and like not do crazy shit. (laughs) It like doesn't, it doesn't fix the internal things that make us do these weird bananas behaviors. And so like DBT is beautiful, but DBT also cannot be done in isolation. It needs to be done with the reframing, with the trauma processing, with the, all of the other things. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I mean, I, I argue the distress tolerance pieces of DBT are helpful for that internal piece. Yeah. Reduces the distress to like still only like three standard deviations above Above typical distress. (laughs) 100%. 100%. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that's where like it reduces the distress basically so that you don't kill yourself in the process of trying to heal. That's essentially like what it's doing or you don't end up in jail. Like, I mean, I always say that without DBT, I'd be dead or in jail. No question. There's no, like, that's not even a consideration for me. I know that that's the fact. I'm far from dead or in jail, which is amazing. And I'm super happy about that. I know but because like, Lori, you would not do good in jail. I would not. I would do fabulous in jail because I'm going to fuck the pod boss. Fair. I'm going to be the pod boss bitch. Uh, yeah, I would do real bad. You're going to make the pod boss real mad. Yeah. No, I would not do well, but Again, maladaptive coping mechanisms. I would kill myself anyway. So it would be fine. Like that, this is the mentality of DPD. It's like irrelevant because I would figure out a way. Like it's not, you know, oh God. It's, it's, this took a tangent, but I just, (laughs) it's really important for me to say that I know that accessing therapy is easier for me in the States. And I still, even with the fact that my insurance, I pay only a copay for up to weekly therapy appointments That's and have real and have for 10 years. I've done thousands of more hours of therapy than you have just because of that access. So if yeah. you are going to therapy and are talking about this, one, you're prioritizing top, top dog shit in your recovery work, which I'm so proud of. And even doing all of those thousands of hours of therapy, I'm still like, Hey, Jennifer, we're not touching that trauma stuff. And you're just like, okay, we're doing it. Like, that's so beautiful. Oh, I I mean, I wouldn't say I'm like, yeah, yeah, girl, let's talk about it. I'm like, Oh fuck. I don't want to talk about that at all, but let's do it because I have to. It's actually so funny. So I get like three sessions a year covered and that is health insurance. Like that's not like government pays three sessions a year. Like that is literally so bananas. Yeah. So I wait until something goes wrong (laughs) or until the end of the year, which is why I'm going back now because it's almost December. And I'm really lucky that my counselor and I have been working together for a really long time. So like, she's super down for that. (laughs) She was like, Hey, it's been like a long time since I've seen you. Like it had been like 
a year and a bit. She's like, what's new? And I was like, well, I'm married. I went to grad school. I have this podcast. I've had two new jobs. And I was like telling Aaron about it afterwards. And he's like, holy shit. I didn't realize it had been that long. He's like, honestly, like good for you for being able to get through all of that shit without your counselor beside you. And I was like, yeah, that's fair. But yeah, I mean, access is a nightmare, but I'm, I'm so thankful that I have a good counselor because like that means the world to me. If, if I had a counselor that had to drop me, if I wasn't on her regular caseload, it would just be, I wouldn't be able to have a counselor that I trusted. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so also like from the clinician perspective, that's such a shitty system because like you can't do anything in three sessions. Like I do a two session intake. Right. Yeah. And the average amount to see positive results in therapy is like eight or nine sessions, I think by the most recent data. So like that's setting therapists up to fail. And then trying to convince people in Canada to private pay them for therapy. Like what a disaster. So you have to be a therapist and a salesman. Like, no, no, that's so not ethical. Yeah. Like that's $1,200 at minimum out of pocket just for that, like eight sessions, those nine sessions. Yeah. Eight, nine sessions. And that's if your counselor is charging 150, which is what mine is. I don't know what others are charging, but like the DBT center here, I'm pretty sure it's like 200. So, yeah, well, I'm bringing back my drop-in DBT group. Um, Only available to US though, right? No, anyone can join. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. I thought it was only US. Yeah, because it's a private drop-in Zoom group. So anyone can join. Um, Okay, cool. I wasn't sure how your license worked with that. Um, I bill it on, I, it's not billed. So it's private. So technically anyone can pay me for any service, but I still call it like a peer support coaching group to avoid all of that. But I'm literally using the exact curriculum from my group therapy, eight weeks of DBT. We should do an episode talking about how that's gone, by the way. Can we just like say that, like, I am teaching I'm facilitating a DBT group therapy program through Medicaid. Like, oh my God, look at me go. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm so happy to hear that because that is very much needed. You should just do that full time. (laughs) Ditch all of your private clients (laughs) because we could definitely fill your spots. Yeah. I mean, the peer part of it is, I think, some of the best part anyways. Like the research that I did on super feelers, like hearing other people talk about the skills was basically the number one reason that people wanted to learn skills and were actually committed to learning them. So I think that's awesome. Well, and we refer so many of our people in our DMs that are like, I need DBT, but I can't get DBT where I'm at to super feelers because Mm -hmm. you're literally getting all of the best parts of DBT in super feelers, lived experience of your peers, normalizing how to use the skills and overview of the skills. And it's not clinical and stuffy. No, not at all. It's the opposite of clinical and stuffy. (laughs) So looping it back to DAX, the thing that they said when they were trying to backtrack was, um, and they kind of acknowledged that DAX had some, like you said, people reach out to him, probably a lot of people. Um, And he said, uh, you know, 
it's totally fine to say signing up for that relationship doesn't work for you. He said, you have to know what it comes with in order to sign up and sign on and say, I'm willing to take this on for my life. I have no problem being very honest and upfront about that and even brutal about what this these disorders are. Well, pause to that because you can't be quote unquote brutal about what these disorders are if you're not speaking from lived experience and actually talking about what they are instead of just stigmatizing them. But then or like very educated in what they are, like arguably. Yes, lived experience is always the best person to describe it. But if you have a PhD in psychology and you study borderline specifically, I'll let you talk about that. That's fine. Like it's not, it's not the same, but I was going to say, cause like, yeah, we still have a lot of thoughts about that when we read those books. Oh, oh yeah. Sorry. Like a hundred percent, but I'd rather that in some ways, depending on the person than some random dude on the internet that like literally doesn't know what he's talking about, but has a huge platform. No offense. Totally. Totally. He said, if you're not someone that wants to take that on, it's okay. But here's the thing. I can own that I'm not in favor of writing an entire category of people off, except for that he is in favor of writing off narcissism, which again, it's important for us to say narcissism is not a thing, y'all. Narcissistic personality disorder is a thing which presents as people struggling, keyword struggling, to experience empathy. It does not mean they have no empathy. It does not mean they are inherently mean. It does not mean they're an inherently abusive. It means that empathy is hard to find. Isn't that antisocial, not narcissist? Oh, Jesus. I'm pretty sure that's a part of it. Okay, I'll I'll Google while you talk. Let me Google while you talk. Yeah, but um, narcissism is like the focus on self, right? Which is also, I mean, inherently means it's hard to find empathy for other people when you're focused on yourself. But again, I'm not a person with lived experience. But he was saying that he was combining narcissism and sociopaths and personality disorders as all being one thing. Um, And then he said, and I don't mind telling people like, don't ever date them. He said, and I think I erred in saying that. So Dax, personality disorders, narcissism, and sociopathy are not the same thing. Borderline personality disorder and narcissism personality disorder are not sociopaths. Like that is not sociopathy. We don't really use that word anymore. Um, I also thought that was super funny because they, oh, that was what it was. They were like, oh, the four, the four, like they didn't say cluster B. It was borderline narcissistic sociopath and psychopath. And I was like, well, first of all, those are the same thing. And also neither of those are in the DSM. So. (laughs) Right. Like sociopathy was used as a synonym for narcissism personality disorder. It's just a, it's a, well, no sociopathy in my experience, at least in Canada is like that is a different way of looking at psychopathy. It's the same thing. It's just from a sociological perspective instead of a psychological perspective. Neither of which are in the DSM. Right. And it's been used as a synonym for like antisocial and narcissistic personality disorders and like labeling these like couple key, very prolific people who have done terrible things that had those disorders, right? Like it's totally inappropriate. But then he goes on to say, 
Anyways, that brings us to what I was inclined to say from the beginning, which is actually kind of how this conversation got brought up originally was they were talking about munchism by proxy syndrome and parents who have, you know, hurt their children as a result of these disorders. And he said, I might hear from someone who has Munchausen, but I am inclined to say that you should never be with someone with Munchausen by proxy. Which I also thought, okay, in the transcript, does it say never be with somebody with Munchausen by proxy or does it just say Munchausen? Um, well, it does just say Munchausen. You're because right. that's different. So that I also thought that was funny. Right. Because I was like, because by proxy is hurting someone else. Exactly. Munchausen is hurting, hurting yourself. yourself. Yeah. So he was like, he was like, yeah, I don't be with somebody with Munchausen's because it's by definition hurting other people. And I was like, literally though, by definition, it's not. I was like, Munchausen's by proxy is completely different than Munchausen's. There's some really great documentaries about Munchausen's, by the way. Very interesting. Um, And then, you know, Monica was like trying to defend Dax and saying that he didn't say anything really wrong. And then she ended up saying at an hour, 42 minutes and 29 seconds, okay for you, Dax, but for me or for anyone listening, I have boundaries and I'm not going to engage in a relationship with someone who has Munchausen's or borderline personality, narcissism, or an addiction. Okay, wait, that was Monica saying that? I thought that was Lily saying that. It was one of them. Oh, okay, No, Lily wasn't involved in the transcript at this point. She's the first half of the episode. This is in the fact check. Oh, shit. Okay, well, everything that I said, Lily said, it was Monica. That's okay. I don't even remember you saying, I don't don't even remember you saying Lily, but um, I don't know. I think that this episode is... What I want the key takeaways to be are one, Lori and I are beautifully working on our relationship. Two, um, it was dangerous and inappropriate. The things that they said that came from a very uneducated and unlived perspective on these highly stigmatized disorders that have resulted in, you know, that stigma has resulted in severe pain and harm to the people who live with them. Narcissism personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, Munchausen's, Munchausen's by proxy are not isolated from that. Just because Lori and I are talking about it from a BPD perspective doesn't mean that it's also okay to say that you should never date a person with any of those four disorders I just mentioned or anyone in general. Let's just all take back our own lived experience and personal autonomy and speak for ourselves, but not speak for groups of people and not tell people what to do. Am I right? You are absolutely right. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey, and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about Borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page, The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.